There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be talking with guest expert Tom O'Neill, investigative journalist and author of Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. Now let's hear what he has to say about the Manson family murders. So Tom, uh, I was wondering if we could start off by having you give our listeners some background on Charles Manson's upbringing and his first brushes with uh, the juvenile correction system. Oh, okay, well, uh, Manson's mother was kind of a low-rent prostitute, petty criminal and was in and out of jail most of her childhood. And when she'd go to jail, he'd end up with uh, different relatives, grandparents, aunts and uncles. He didn't really have a structured um, home lifestyle. So he, he started committing crimes himself when he was about 10 or 11 years old. And it was petty stuff, uh, although he did steal some automobiles, I think by the time he was 13 or 14. So it was about that time that he entered the uh, reform schools and, and juvenile homes that were run by the federal government for kids, kids like him. And so after he gets released from prison in uh, 1967, you have uh, found some evidence that his parole officers were surprisingly lax while he was living in Berkeley and San Francisco. Um, can you walk us through your discoveries and, and what the reason is for that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it took a while, more than a year, really, of my submitting FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, to the U.S. Uh, probation and Parole Office to get his records for that period, the two years between 67, when he was released in 69. And I discovered from day one of his release, uh, in contradiction of what Bugliosi wrote in his book, Helter Skelter, that he had been given... Um, permission to travel from Los Angeles upon his release to San Francisco. Uh, he hadn't been. I found documents showing that he had just turned up there and showed up at the office to announce that he was there. And rather than violate him immediately, which would have normally been the course of action, uh, they agreed to let him stay, assigned him to Roger Smith, a federal par parole and probation officer, also assigned him to a specialized study called the San Francisco Project, which was um, an evaluation of recidivism and why certain 
parolees and probationers were more inclined to break rules. Did it have to do with uh, how much or how little attention they got from their supervising officer? So it's kind of ironic that the very kind of placement he had, which was to prevent and understand recidivism, uh, allowed him to recidivate. I don't know if that's the word, but to violate his parole. He he got arrested in, uh, he was released in March, and by June he had his first arrest, which was for interfering with a police officer in the line of duty who was trying to take uh, into custody a 14-year-old girl from Manson. Uh, He spent three days in jail, was put on probation. Ironically, that, you know, probation had had never been reported before, uh, or the arrest was reported, but not the fact that he pled guilty to it and should have been immediately violated. And also, there was no probation supervision as required by the court. So everything that kind of happened to Manson from the beginnings of his release in 67 through through the murders and even about a month or two after was um, uncharacteristic of how, how the parole system ran for other people. Every time he got arrested or caught, somebody interceded beginning with the first year, his, his parole officer and second year, I wasn't able to find out who, who was making the calls, but he would get released rather than prosecuted for whatever crime he was picked up for and also not sent back to prison for being in violation of, of his terms, which is he, he violated continually, you know, not giving addresses, not showing up for meetings. He just wanted it. And for whatever reason, he had a get out of jail free card for the two years that he built his family into, you know, what we know as the Manson family. So do we know why that happened? Um, and I guess, it, can you tell us what this um chaos uh, uh, program that was started with by the CIA in the late 60s. Um, can you tell us more about that and if that had anything to do with it? There were two programs that both began in 67. One was chaos by the CIA. The other one was COINTELPRO by the FBI. And both programs were created um, with the authority of, of Lyndon Johnson, who was president in 1967, and the cooperation of Edgar Hoover at the uh, FBI and, and uh, Richard Helms at the CIA uh, and Governor Ronald Reagan in California and, and the mayor of San Francisco, Sam Yorty, all of these men were pretty far right wing um, thinkers. And the programs, CIA's was actually illegal because CIA isn't allowed to operate on domestic soil. Uh, and in addition to that, their activities were illegal, as were the FBI's. They were, they began by opening mail and wiretapping without warrants. And eventually, by the middle of 67, they started using undercover agents to infiltrate groups that they perceived were a threat to national security. So that began with uh, the Black Panthers that had been born in Oakland and spread across the country. Uh, at about 60, 65, 66, and also uh, the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, um, anti-war, uh, an anti-war movement, free speech movement, and any kind of leftist group that was trying to stop the war. And uh, the surveillance and the infiltration really escalated by 68 uh, to the point where we don't actually know too much about what chaos did or didn't do because all of the records were destroyed. And that's one thing that really bothers me is I do think there must be some record of it out there. But if you look it up, we just know that it was created, who it was created by, where it operated. But I, I couldn't even tell you one agent's name who worked for him. But on the other hand, COINTELPRO, we know about that because there was a, a theft of an FBI warehouse in Pennsylvania in 1970. 71 of all the COINTELPRO files, which were shared with Congress or investigations. And shockingly, the FBI eventually admitted not only to the existence of the program, but the program had been created to disrupt, smear, and even what they call neutralize these militant groups of African-Americans and leftist protesters. So what the groups were doing was trying to provoke violence. And uh, for instance, in Los Angeles, the FBI admitted to 
something like uh, 12 to 16, causing 12 to 16 murders of either Panthers or their rivals uh, who were called the uh, U.S. slaves by telling them that an attack was about to be waged on them, having the informants do that, provoking them to attack first. So it was pretty shocking what they were doing. And um, the fact that uh, Manson, it's harder to kind of synopsize this, but if people read the books, they'll see the, the case I lay out for it being possible that Manson was just another one of these operations, probably gone awry. I don't think they ever wanted Sharon Tate killed or the people there. But he was treated the same way the informants were that both Chaos and COINTELPRO were using to provoke. Uh, you know, they had people that were getting, should have been arrested and then released in order to do the Chaos and COINTELPRO agents' biddings. And in particular, Manson famously wanted to start a race war and to frame, murder, frame murders on Black Panthers. And those murders were Tate and Bianca and Gary Hinman. It was the exact same objective that both of these agencies had at that time. What were some of the tactics they used uh, in order to manipulate these informants? You know, Fred Hampton was a Black Panther in Chicago uh, who, who was a well-known, well-regarded, uh, highly placed Panther who, who, who was perceived as a threat by Hoover and the FBI. So what they did was they got a, a, a former Panther who had turned to become an informant for them uh, to trail Hampton, and they arranged for Hampton's execution by agents. And to do that, they drugged Hampton. Uh, it, well, the, the informant who was with Hampton drugged him in his apartment and then uh, had someone else call the police and say that Hampton had a gun and was about to uh, come out and, and kill agents or something. And the agents uh, um, broke into the apartment and shot him to death in bed when he was passed out. That's the kind of tactics that they used to, as they said, neutralize the opposition. And you suspect that Manson was uh, recruited for this possibly while in jail or after? Yeah, I, I don't even like to say I suspect. I just like to say there's a good case to be made that it happened um, uh-huh. and that, uh-huh. uh, it, it's the only explanation I could come up with after 20 years of digging into his files and the files of all these programs and interviewing people in law enforcement who've been part of the COINTEL program and the district attorney's office and police uh, all the way up to a guy who, who was a, a very highly regarded former deputy DA in Los Angeles and judge who looked at the record I showed him of uh, of Manson's catch and release for the two years. And he said to me, normally you can blame this stuff on, you know, human error, incompetence, bureaucracy. But the pattern here with Manson from what you're showing me and all these official documents is it had to have been deliberate. There's no way they would have kept releasing him and his the seriousness of his crimes just got, you know, more and more extreme unless he was more valuable to someone outside than inside. He said somebody was using him, protecting him. He said, I can't tell you whether it was the FBI, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, the PD, or the CIA group, but somebody was doing it. That's clear. So uh, people who read the book will see that I make a strong case for that, but I never found a document saying Charles Manson is to be protected. He, we're, we know he's going to start a race war. We're feeding him information so that he thinks that he's about to be attacked by Panther, Panthers, which was one of the things that, that Manson thought. Uh, I haven't found that smoking gun document. I don't know if it exists. Now, you suggest uh, in your book uh, that the, the historical narrative of the Manson murders is uh, probably wrong. Now, this is the narrative presented by the lead prosecutor um, with the helter-skelter motive. What holes did you find in that research? Well, there were a lot. Uh, the helter-skelter motive was Manson convinced his followers that there was an impending race war. And Manson knew this because he had uh, interpreted prophecies from the, the Old Testament. He also claimed to be getting messages from the Beatles through their lyrics in the White Album, and uh, he had promised his, his followers that there would be a race war where blacks started killing whites, and then, uh, oh no, they, Manson said he would have his family 
kill whites, make it look like blacks to ignite this race war. It was taking too long to happen. It was prophesized, but it wasn't happening fast enough. After that happened, he said he would, to his followers, he would hide them in a secret hole in the desert he had found until the race war, the um, world-ending race war, had finished. And at that point, the blacks would be running the planet, but he told his followers the blacks were too dumb to, to, to run the, the, the planet. So he and his followers would then reemerge, subjugate the blacks, make them slaves again, and then repopulate the world with Manson's uh, perfect offspring. I do believe that the hard, hardest core members of the Manson family, mostly the women uh, who did go to prison for killing for him, did believe that. Uh, I don't believe Manson believed that. I believe he had other, uh, there was other stuff going on and he had other reasons for the murders. Uh, and as I said about the COINTEL and chaos programs, that's one of two or three different hypotheses my book presents where I have a lot of information showing it was more likely one of these than the fact that uh, Manson really believed this race war was going to happen and these people were randomly selected for murder. Uh, ironically, and, and unfortunately, Bugliosi had said this. He kind of slipped in a couple interviews over the, over the many years where he, he was asked if he believed that uh, Manson truly believed in that. And Manson said, and Bugliosi said, no, 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 I never, I don't think Manson believed in that for a second. Um, unfortunately, when I read these interviews with Bugliosi, it was already after he had threatened personal injury to me and also lawsuits and wouldn't speak to me. So I couldn't ask him the natural follow-up question, which would have been, well, then why did he um, send his followers to kill these people if it wasn't to start a race war? If he didn't believe this would start the race war, what was the other motive? And that was something I spent 20 years trying to find out. Wow. So the the Gary Hinman cover up theory is that is that new or was that ever presented in court or because that seems more plausible to me. But uh, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the copycat theory, you mean? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, that that actually what happened was after Manson and, and three of his women followers and Tex Watson were convicted in the Tate LaBianca murder. They never had put on a defense. Manson wouldn't allow it. So the prosecution laid out all their evidence. And then the jury unanimously agreed to uh, convict all four of them. And then, uh, or five of them, wasn't five of them. And then uh, they had the death penalty phase where the jury heard evidence uh, and then had to decide whether to, you know, send them all to the elected chair. Uh, during the death penalty phase as a way to bear Manson the death penalty, his followers, the women, uh, and even women who hadn't been convicted, they all took the stand and said, okay, here's the truth of this thing. What happened was Bobby Beausoleil killed Gary Hinman, and we loved Bobby much more than we cared about Charlie. And uh, Bobby told Linda Kasabian, one of the followers who had actually gotten immunity in exchange for her testimony, uh, to commit murders and make it look like the Panthers had done it because he had left uh, indications, bloody ball prints and death to Piggy at, at the Hinman site in order to uh, get him out of jail because if there were more murders while he was in jail with the same you know, symbols and everything, then they'd think they had the wrong man. So this was something con concocted by the followers basically to save Charlie. Uh, and, uh, and they admitted they all did the killings, you know, uh, Patricia Kremlinkle, Susan Atkins. And what happened was, um, that, uh, Bugliosi made the argument that, that, that doesn't hold up. And, and he made a pretty good argument. I don't believe it was a copycat crime, but that theory had really been invented by the followers themselves. And there's a raging argument in the, in the world of Manson obsessives over whether, all of these murders happened just to free Bobby Beausoleil and uh, they, that they were copycats to get him out of jail. Yes. OK, so that was a theory that was, um, you know, started by the actual followers within the group. To get Charlie off the hook. 
then why was it was the Gary Hinman murder um, just a, a drug deal gone wrong? That's another theory that he had sold bad drugs to the uh, straight Satans who were a bite gang and that uh, the Satans wanted the money and he wouldn't give it back. And the Manson probably both away and two of the women went to kill him for that. I don't believe that either. I don't completely discount it. Um, I think the him and murder is a lot more mysterious than the others. And, you know, uh, I do believe that law enforcement knew that the Tate Mon Bianca murders happened about two weeks, almost exactly two weeks after Gary Hemmings' body was discovered. And I believe law enforcement in Los Angeles knew who killed Sharon Tate and her friends and who killed the La Biancas immediately but uh, didn't do anything to take them into custody because it would have exposed the federal connections to Manson and, and the provocation of Manson. In your book, uh, you've done over 20 years uh, of research, and, and a, ch- a chunk of that time was spent trying to get your hands on these uh, Charles Tex Watson tapes. Um, what, are, what are these tapes, and, and why are they so valuable to the investigation? Well, ironically... Um, I was trying to get a hold of it. I wasn't trying to get a hold of the tapes. I didn't know they existed until 2009. So that's about 10 years in. I was actually just interviewing Tex Watson's original attorney, Bill Boyd, about Tex Watson on the telephone. Uh, And during the course of the interview, he said to me, you know, I had Tex the day he turned himself in because he was wanted and Los Angeles had sent two detectives on a plane and Watson had gone back to his hometown of Texas and was living with his parents. And uh, Bill Boyd, the attorney who, who knew the family, called up the parents and said, bring Charles, his Texas name is Charles, bring Charles in for questioning with me before these detectives come, because once they're here, I think they're going to put them under arrest, and they're not even telling me what it's for, except that it's serious because they're flying here today. So Watson went in with his parents, and he asked um, billboard in front of the parents asked Watson if they if he had any idea why these detectives were coming and Watson said no and he said okay well Charles I'm going to send your parents home and why don't you just stay here and think about this for a while in my office and I'm going to go out and get lunch and I'll come back in an hour so he came back in an hour and Charles said yeah I know why they're coming it's because you know that actress Sharon Tate and billboard said yes and he said well I killed her so Bill Boyd told me in this interview that he immediately took out a tape recorder and started recording um, Watson's story of meeting the family, um, turning into a criminal with the family, and uh, a blow-by-blow account of all the murders they committed. And when Boyd was telling me about these tape recordings on the phone, he said that Watson had also described other murders that he had committed with the group that the, hadn't been found out by the authorities. At that point, I did know that because of the date that Boyd said these tapes were made, that it had to be the earliest recorded account by one of the killers of what happened. Uh, so I really wanted to hear those tapes. Also to see there have long been suspicions that other people were killed by the family who, who, who were never connected to them. So um, I asked Bill Boyd if I could hear the tapes and he suddenly kind of realized that he had violated his uh, client's uh, confidentiality and privilege. You're not allowed to tell, you know, journalists what your right. client said to you as a client. And he said, well, you know, the first thing he did was he corrected himself. He said, this wasn't Charles meaning text killing people. He was telling me about other people that the group had killed that he was aware of. And I said, okay, all right. Could I hear him? And he said, well, I'd have to get his permission. And I kind of knew from that moment that there was no way I'd ever hear him. So that, um, I called him for two months and he, he wouldn't, I didn't get anywhere with him. Long story short, he actually died six months after we spoke on the treadmill of a heart attack. And uh, I found out a couple of years later that the tapes and all of Bill Boyd's law firm possessions had Gone, well, he, the firm had gone into bankruptcy and they were all with the trustee. So I started making a plea to the conservator of, of the estate and the trustee to release these tapes. And my argument was if there's evidence of other killings, don't these families deserve 
to have some kind of uh, resolution. You know, they might think that they were runaway daughters or something from 1969 who never came home. And I finally persuaded her to release them. And then the L.A. DA's office, who I'd been sharing information with stupidly, uh, intervened and she agreed to release them to the L.A. DA's office instead of me, the trustee in Texas. And at that point, Watson learned about it and then he went to court to prevent the case from being released. And that turned into a two-year court battle in Texas and went to the state's Supreme Court. And the state Supreme Court finally released the tapes to the DA's office. And the DA said as soon as they got them, of course, they were going to share them with me because I could help them decipher what was on. And they didn't even know about them until I found out about them. But as soon as they got them, they locked them down and shut me out. And to this day, you know, all these years later, they won't release them to anyone. They're in a safe. They won't say what's on them. And it's the only piece of evidence anyone knows related to the case that they withheld from public after 50, 51 years now. That's, so I believe yeah. that the true, I believe the true narrative for the murders is on those tapes. Uh, this would probably take too long to explain, but in my book, and this is something I'm very fine with saying definitively, Susan Atkins, the woman who did provide the first story of the murders, she was compromised because the defense attorney who was assigned to represent her was illegally replaced by the prosecution before she was even identified as a suspect with the family and replaced by a prosecutor, a former prosecutor who wrote a script for her. And the, the murders that we know about from Helter Skelter and all the books, everything about them we can't trust because that came from the prosecution uh, without Atkins' knowledge that she had actually had somebody, just like the FBI and the CIA, planted as her defense attorney. And Watson's, Watson's account was made before any of this happened. And I believe the reason the LAPD and the DA won't release these tapes is it has the truth of how the murders happened, why they happened, uh, all this stuff that they're, they're never going to share. Now, I, I saw a video that you posted on the Instagram account um, uh, for the book, and it suggests that the night before the Tate murders, there, the, the same foursome had been at Jay Sebring's home for dinner, and some cable wires were cut. Um, can you expound on this and tell us how that supports um, uh, d maybe just a, a different theory? Yeah, yeah. That didn't end up in my book because I didn't have enough of the documents and, and, and supporting interviews done yet. So instead, uh, just in the last month or so, I guess about four, four or five weeks ago, I did put up my information, uh, documents, audio interviews, et cetera, showing that the night before Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Farkowski were killed at Sharon Tate's house, and a fifth kid, Stephen Parent, who was visiting the caretaker, um, the four people, uh, the first four, had dinner at Jay Sebring's house. And after dinner, they were sitting down in his bedroom to watch a movie on cable that Sebring had recently installed. And they did have cable available. Everybody thinks it wasn't available in 1969, but it was. Uh, there's a lot of research through that. Anyway, um, and when they sat down to watch this cable movie or whatever program they were going to watch, all of a sudden there was a blast of light outside and inside a surge and it lasted a second. And then everything went back to normal, except they lost cable service. So what I found was um, an interview with the, the person who installed the wires for Jay Sebring, uh, who was a law student at the time, Paul Greenwald, uh, 26, and he was a good friend of Jay's, too. His father was Jay Sebring's personal lawyer. So in the interview, he told the police that uh, about this, that he had gotten a call Thursday night, August 7th, from Jay saying, come over here, uh, something happened, and we've lost power uh, to the cable, but not the lights. Everything else is on. And Paul Greenwald said, I'm just about to go on a date. I've been trying to have this date for months. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I'm sorry. And Jay said, okay, we'll do something else. And in fact, they did. They all went to uh, the, the, one, of the, one of the nightclubs. Uh, and uh, in the interview, Greenwald told the police that he, uh, on the Sunday or Monday after the murders, uh, his father sent him 
to get a suit from Jay's house for suit to be bar- uh, for Jay to be buried in. And he said while he was over there, he wanted to go investigate and see what happened. So he went around to where the, the wire circuitry was outside, and he found out that the, the, the wires had been cut. And as he said to me, he goes, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I was actually supporting myself as an electrician before, until I passed the bar, and I did all the wires there. And he said these, these wires were deliberately cut. You could tell by the gradation in them, the way that they were cut in, in such a slant. He goes, it wasn't an animal who did it. It obviously wasn't a gardener because it happened at, you know, nine o'clock at night. Um, and what is so significant about that is the next night when the same four people who had had dinner at Jay's house the night before were all at Sharon's house, before the killers went in to slaughter them, they cut the telephone wires to the house and not the lights, just the telephone wires. And as Paul Greenwald said to me, he thought that they mistook because the cable was relatively new, the cable for the TV cable for the uh, phone wires. Uh, and what happened was when you cut that wire, it causes an instant surge to all the other electricity in the house. So everything gets really bright for a second and then dims down. And the second night, they didn't make that mistake. They didn't cut the lights at, at Sharon Tate. They just cut the, the telephone wires and then went in and committed the murders. So if, it, if it's true that they were deliberately cut, I mean, we still don't know who deliberately cut them, but it sure raises questions that the same modus operandi was used the next night. 24 hours later, the same four people were, were killed. And um, the fact that if it's true that this was done by the Manson family in a prior attempt, number one, it means that these people weren't randomly targeted and weren't strangers to their killers, as Bugliosi maintains in the book and maintained at trial. The house of Sharon was selected because of the prior occupant, and Manson didn't know who lived there. But if somebody tried to kill them the night before at a different house, then they were being stalked and targeted. Right. And Bulio right. like so much other stuff you'll see in my book, uh, kept that kept that out of uh, the narrative because it conflicted with his narrative. Lastly, before we go, I just want to get, in your opinion, if you had to pick one thing or person that you think is to blame for the Tate-LaBianca murders, who or what would you pick? I, you know, it sounds like a cop-out. <laughs> Uh, I think the people who were convicted definitely did the killing, you know, uh, uh, I don't know that there weren't other people in both houses that night. Uh, and both after the murders had been committed and before the police came and I make a good case for how and why that would have happened in the book. Uh, I do believe that some, some entity, either individuals or an agency was was protected by Bugliosi at trial. Uh, they just wanted to get the people that they knew killed the Manson family, but I don't believe that the family and Manson committed those uh, murders without being having outside an outside influence, if, if that makes any sense. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Um, and our listeners can check out your book, Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Uh, where can they get your book and how can they follow you on social media? They can get the book uh, at their local bookstores or Amazon uh, or Books a Million, I think. And uh, it's all the paperback came out just a week or two ago. So it's, it's less expensive than the hardcover was. Uh, my social media is, um, I always forget exactly what the call letters are, but I have an Instagram account and a Facebook account just for the book where I have lots of these documents and like what you were talking about, that presentation of the cut, cut wires. So I think it's one of them is Chaos the Book and the other one is Chaos Manson. But if they just Google my name, Tom O'Neill, Manson, Chaos. It's, I just looked it up. It's Chaos Charles Manson. Putting stuff up, documents and original audio excerpts and stuff. You know, every few weeks I'll add something else so people can see some of the research that, you know, wasn't able to be in the book because we couldn't make it 10,000 pages. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Great. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Fact checker, Chris Smith. What up? What up? Uh, Chris, you can't see him, but he's on his phone texting right now. Fact, fact checking his uh, text messages. Incorrect. Incorrect. <laughs> Actually, I was on our uh, podcast homepage looking at some nice new reviews that came in. Oh. Seeing, wow. seeing if I, seeing if I, anybody really liked Clayton, and if I really needed to be nervous about my position here on the show. Oh, interesting. I mean, Clayton is giving you um, a run for your money for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say, you bring an element, sort of this intangible element of like um, chaos right. that I don't think any other fact checker right. could. Match. Well, when you, you know, chaos and fact checking are sort of, they go hand in hand, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, at least in my style of fact checking. But, you know, when I was thinking about uh, having Clayton sit in for me, um, I was a little nervous because he is um, definitely smarter than me, a bit more uh, charismatic. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I have that X factor that mm. sort of puts me over the top. You don't know why you like me, you just kind of do. I think that's a perfect transition to talk about what our guest expert, Tom O'Neill, had to say about these Manson murders. I mean, we could have possibly like given the CIA at least the big slap because, you know, at the end of the day, Manson did was responsible for the murders. 
But it sounds like there may have been, as you said, these outside influences that sort of created this monster. I mean, outside influences, though, for me, is very vague. What I, you know, we all have outside influences, right? Like ballet, I took ballet for um, five years, and that influenced my posture. And that was an outside influence. Um, <laughs> but, <That's> true. <laughs> but... What I, what I thought, and I, but I do take your point that the CIA is a massive, specific outside influence for, uh, for Manson. You know, what I found interesting, Amanda, was that we didn't put any of the killers really up on the board. (laughs) That is something that occurred to me as well, that we, yeah. Although I think it's just because it's so widely accepted that Manson brainwashed and put them all up to it. But still, it is shocking that we kind of missed that (laughs) opportunity to at least give them maybe the big slap, the people who actually killed over the CIA. What do you think, Amanda? Honestly, I'm torn. Because in a lot of ways, I'm with Tom. I just am so fascinated by everything he was saying. I, I, I have, I'm reading the book. I haven't finished it yet. So maybe we can revisit once we've all finished his book. Right. Um, but no, I, I do actually think instead of the prison system, we probably want to get the, give the minions the big slap. I do think so. It's like how – and we're, we're going to – you know, touch this on uh, next week's episode, the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. But it's like, how how much does um, persuasion and manipulation really play into someone murdering someone? Well, and very interesting, too. I think Tom covers this a little bit in his book. But um, so when... Bugliosi was first prosecuting Manson. He basically, in order to sort of uh, frame him as this evil genius mastermind, claimed that he had totally brainwashed his followers. Um, And then when they were seeking the death penalty for all of the actual killers, they sort of had to shift and reframe and say, well, well, they were brainwashed, but they were still in control of their actions. So this idea that they were brainwashed is sort of a convenient tool when it helps you get Charles Manson convicted. But then they did sort of backtrack that theory when they were trying to get them all the death penalty. So so I don't really know. I'd have to look a little bit more into what it actually means to be brainwashed. That's true. Um, yeah, the brainwashing element. I, 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 I have a hard time with brainwashing because I'm, I'm, I'm like, we all have our choices, you know, but I also Mm -hmm. have never really been brainwashed that you know of you, of course you wouldn't know. (laughs) That's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess to a certain extent, my parents have brainwashed me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Chris, well, that ballet class brainwashed you into having good posture. It's true. (laughs) Um, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I'll never know, but I don't know. I, 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 it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to judge because you can't be in these uh, people's brain. You can't know what's what's um, what's kind of like encouraging them or 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 driving them to commit these crimes. So what do we do? I do think I, I am still with you in that we probably should have given the Manson girls and Tex, who was particularly uh, gruesome in the murders, probably at least the big slap for for carrying them out. Chris, do you have an opinion? Yeah, I, I uh, man, I, I, I'm, I'm kicking myself because I really feel like we should, we let one go here by not at least putting Tex and the gals on the board. I mean, they're the ones who yeah. do the stabbing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where were we on that? But, I gotta, I gotta question our judgment and our approach here. Only, well, be- no, because if, if there's no Manson, are there are there Manson girls? Are, is there a Tex Watson? Um, yes, there is a Tex Watson. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, do does do they kill anybody? 
Um, probably not, I guess, without Manson, right? Probably not. And in a way, we were all brainwashed by the helter-skelter theory that is so commonly accepted. That we were like, Charles Manson was an evil genius. He brainwashed his followers, but he's really the one responsible. So I do think we could, we're not sending them to jail. By the way, they already all went to jail, except for (laughs) one of them. Um, But I I would be down to change it from the prison system getting the big slap to to Tex and the specific Manson girls. Okay. Uh, I think we should do it. Um, and next time we'll know who if someone did the stabbing, they go on the board. Just it doesn't mean they're going to go to jail, but they at least go on the board. You know, yeah. and there should be an alarmist like cork board or an alarmist office like most wanted poster we need to make for the CIA <laughs> because the CIA, oh, yeah. the CIA, we were close to getting the CIA in the um, Che Guevara um the Che Guevara uh, board, uh, the the what what would you call these podcasts? And yes. and then also this one, the CIA. So we've got our eye on you, CIA, and we've got a photo of you up on our in our office um, in case you slip up again. Yeah, I think that's really important because as I'm learning and as Tom O'Neill is teaching me, the CIA. They're up to no good. <laughs> they are up to something. and I yeah, mean, they're it's... up to something. Uh, I don't know. I need to learn more about the CIA. But that's the thing. You can't really. Unless <laughs> well, you get into it. Them. <laughs> yeah. You know it already. You, you've been working for them for years. Yes. yes. <laughs> you did say You're that. double agent. <laughs> you did say that the CIA would be lucky to have me, Amanda last time i and i believe it and they are lucky to have you because we all know you're a cia operative (laughs) who is doing a podcast because we're you're brainwashing people with your pro cia agenda (laughs) and you're going through systematically rewriting history letting the cia off off the the hook (laughs) brainwashing everyone who's listening amanda you've been listening to too many web crawlers but you know what too though (laughs) we have to be careful because if we put the cia in the alarmist jail What's going to happen? They could form some kind of revolt. Like they, I don't they trust could, them they in could there. Trade information. They could form a coup. They're going to do some sort of fake coup. They're, like write a bunch of bad reviews. Yeah, on our, exactly. I think every bad review we've ever gotten um, is probably like a CIA. CIA agent. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, agent. I can't, you guys. I can't let us go down this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I, you know me <laughs> and my conspiracy theories. I can't. We will not go there. Okay. I'm pretty sure okay, we did. Okay, well yeah, we we we've, we've been there. But I think let's change our let's change our slap verdict cuz I think we did make an error. And did people call us out on the error of our ways or this is something we all came to on our own? Absolutely not. Nobody <laughs> called us out on the error of our ways, but I do think they've been listening for a long time. So <laughs> at this point, they're used to that. Uh but someone did say that they wanted us it, this was uh definitely a Delaney, a Delaney, and she said that uh, we should put summer up on the board because it was too hot and crimes go up during the summer. If there was no summer, there would be no summer of love. Henceforth, no Manson murders. So that's... Wow. And also without the summer, the Beatles couldn't have recorded most of the album that inspired Manson. That was her thinking. Hmm fascinating point i mean i that's really smart we should have put summer up on the board but who wants to send summer to jail (laughs) summer's my favorite season yeah what would it just be school all year round oh just three and the year would be like one quarter as long it would be a really short year which would would make us all older oh that would suck we'd basically had good skin we'd be older but our skin would still be as good why? Because it doesn't no, because, dry up because you're not summer. going in the sun and you're not getting, you know, a lot of ultraviolet I don't know. Rays. I'm kind of a fan of vitamin D personally, so I don't really <laughs> yeah. want to rule out summer myself. Okay, so we're not putting, it's summer's not going to change the verdict, and I think we should call it um, Tex Watson and the Manson Girls, you're getting the big slap. 
Now, I have a little update. You know, I have put out my desperate plea to get a thousand ratings. Um, and last week we had some good news because we got our star rating up to 4.5 out of five stars. And it only took like, what, two weeks to get that to happen. And uh, so that was amazing. Bad news is we're still only at 995 ratings. <gasps> so close. So close. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, leave us five stars. And I think we can get to five stars by our 50th episode, what? which is in two weeks. Oh, my God. If, an, if enough people go on and rating, rate and review, it only takes a minute. I think we can get up to five stars. Well, that would be a really nice gift. But Chris, do you want to read a couple of these reviews that people have been leaving? I'd be I'd be happy to, but Rebecca made me put my phone away earlier, but I'll take it out again. <laughs> she shamed you. She really did. And uh, I was actually, you know, I was working on the show, but what else is new? Don't worry. He's back. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So a nice review that did not happen to mention Clayton, which I was very happy to see, because <laughs> that means I'm still in good standing. Um, this is from Kid from San Francisco, and it says, Awesome. This podcast makes my daily run in the heat bearable. It's entertaining and educational. Cool. That's nice. I, very nice. Yeah, it's nice to run and listen to a podcast. So, you know, you know listening to this podcast actually helps you burn more calories. Did you know mm, that, Abanda? I believe it. <laughs> oh, that's, that is scientifically proven. <laughs> that's right, because you're working on your brain along with your legs. And I have a uh, one that gives a little nod to our um, producer and editor, Amanda Lund, and it's really short and simple. It was on, it's by NB Fit, and it says, Great pod, and then the, it, was said, it says, Love the pod, and the length is perfect. Wow. Well, you know that makes me happy. I try very hard to keep these between 45 and like 55 minutes. True. Yes, that's true. And, you know, that with that, I think it brings us to the end of this episode. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so anyway, rate and review. <laughs> yes, please. Thank, please and thank you. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to be talking about the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. It's going to be interesting. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.